Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. If I might have your attention, please. Uh, my name is Tom Palmer. I'm a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and the executive vice president for international programs at the Atlas Network and director of Cato University, in which last capacity it is my great pleasure to welcome all of you to this 2014 Cato University summer program. Looking over the audience, I see some faces that I recognize, some long-term friends. I'm now old enough not to learn, have learned not to say old friends, uh, but long-term friends, and I'm looking forward to uh, catching up. And lots and lots of faces who are unfamiliar, but I hope we'll get to know each other by the end of this uh, short week. The last few years, we've held Cato University in Cato's uh, fabulous, gorgeous, amazing, high-tech uh, Freedom Headquarters in Washington, D.C. If you haven't been there, I hope you'll visit at some point. It's really an amazing building. But this year, we're back on the West Coast and back at one of our favorite locations, the Rancho Bernardo Inn, which takes very, very good care of us. Uh, it's full of wonderful things to do, a few of which you'll have time for in our very busy schedule. I should also note that this is one of the nicest climates in the United States. It's also not peak season. That's usually the early spring or late fall when it's cold up north and people like to be down here. Uh, but this delightful, wonderful weather will provide a very good setting for us to learn, discuss, debate, uh, think through, and apply the ideas of liberty. Now, Cato University is a pretty small part of what the Cato Institute does. It produces thousands and thousands of different products, research papers, books, testimony before Congress and regulatory bodies, media appearances, op-eds, uh, journal articles, uh, briefings, public lectures, filings before the Supreme Court, and lots, lots, lots more. And all that work is based on sound analysis, so well-checked empirical data, and so on. You can find it at www.cato.org. You can download it all. Most of you are already acquainted with that. But although it's a small portion of the activities of Cato, Cato University is very important. It's even central to the Cato Institute's approach to public policy. Now, most people who know about Cato know because they saw someone on television taking on one or another advocate of big government, or, or from a radio program, or an op-ed, or something like that, uh, people who are promoting sound public policy. But all of that is rooted in certain principles, and that's very, very important to us. When Cato was set up, the founders insisted that there be programs to make sure that there was some connection to the fundamental bedrock. Because institutions drift, they lose, connection to their principles, and Cato's founders wanted to make sure that that would not happen, that Cato would be true to its mission and to its principles. And for that reason also, Cato has not gone the route of many organizations building up a gigantic endowment. Cato likes to be very closely connected to its donors, which is to say budgeting roughly year by year with a bit of a surplus or a cushion. The reason is, Lots of organizations that become endowed lose connection with their principles. And after some period of years, they're off doing something that the founders would have been horrified at. And the Cato's founders wanted to make sure that would not happen, that Cato had to be connected to those fundamental principles and realize the mission and intention of its sponsors. At Cato, we strive at all times to maintain a very direct connection between what we do and those principles of individual liberty, of personal responsibility, limited government, peace, justly acquired property, and free enterprise. So we offer not only commentary on current events, that's the bulk of what we do, but also a lot of resources to explore the depths of the ideas of liberty. And I would recommend a very cool website, libertarianism.org, which I encourage you to visit and exploit. It's got a lot of really outstanding resources for those who want to uh, explore these issues, and a wonderful weekly essay by my old teacher, uh, George H. Smith. Uh, when I was very, very young, I paid him $25 a week when I was a boy to teach me philosophy. 
It didn't work, but uh, he's a very, very fine uh, philosopher. And then, of course, Cato University. So to understand what Cato's about, it might help to go back to ancient, ancient, really ancient history. I'm talking about the 1970s. <laughs> Before many of you here were born, when the idea of limited government was considered pretty eccentric. It was off the wall, it was zany, it was kooky. I mean, just think about it. Who could actually favor, on the one hand, allowing people to keep what they earn, and on the other hand, allowing them to determine what they might smoke? Like, how crazy is that? Who would want to not arrest people because they've homeschooled their kids and at the same time not arrest someone for kissing a person of the same gender? I mean, come on, that's crazy, right? I mean, when you tolerate something, aren't you supposed to just tolerate the stuff you like? What's the point of tolerating things you don't like or you wouldn't engage in personally? I mean, that's nuts. But there were a number of people, business people and academics, who decided that there needed to be an institution that would do the hard work of making the case for liberty and explaining to people there's nothing crazy about letting other people live their own lives. There's nothing crazy about respecting other people's property, other people's lives, other people's decisions about how they want to live. That institution would make the case for liberty philosophically, but also explain how the world works. God knows people in Washington need that. Uh, looking at facts rather than fantasies. Revealing not only what is seen, as Frederick Bastiat put it, but also what is not seen in the case of government policy. Asking about the costs of policies and their victims. Not only the benefits, which are usually visible to us, we see the bridge that was constructed, we see the program, we see the person who got the check from government, but pointing out what was the cost, what didn't happen because that did happen. And that's hard to do, to be able to visualize the real cost of government behavior. It would be an institution that would be focused on reality-based analysis rather than starting from the typical uh, starting point, which is government is all-wise, all-knowing, and entirely benevolent. But that is, in fact, the starting point of a great deal of thinking in Washington, D.C., and in the state capitals, and even worse, for a long time, it was how almost all the intellectuals thought. The assumption was, of course, they were the ones who were going to be in power. And they were all wise, all good, and entirely benevolent. It's an institution that would promote better public policies by formulating feasible, just, and constitutionally sound proposals and laying them out to the policymakers as a menu to say these are some of the ways we could address identifiable programs or problems that make sense, the numbers add up, and they are consistent with our Constitution. So the Cato Institute was founded in 1977, and the mission adopted by the first board of directors was to increase the understanding of public policies based on the principles of limited government, free markets, individual liberty, and peace. The Institute will use the most effective means to originate, advocate, promote, and disseminate applicable policy proposals that create free, open, and civil societies in the United States and throughout the world. Now, last year, we went through a very vigorous program of reanalyzing the mission and the resources of the Institute and so on, and reformulated that mission statement so that there was a new one adopted by the board, a little bit shorter. The mission of the Cato Institute is to originate, disseminate, and increase understanding of public policies based on the principles of individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. Our vision is to create free, open and civil societies founded on libertarian principles. Now the name of the Cato Institute, it's not the Central Atlantic Treaty Organization, uh, nor as one of the founders insisted, it does not stand for Crane and the others. Uh, 
It refers very indirectly to the Roman statesman Cato the Younger, who committed suicide in, 40, in the year 46 BC. So why would it be named after a man who killed himself? Which is perhaps not the best strategy for advancing liberty. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about that tomorrow, why he was such a significant and important person. But he was famous and became an icon for his insistence on the rule of law, on the Constitution, and on limits on power, and in particular on moral accountability of the holders of political authority. He was very concerned about the over-centralization of power. He opposed the ambitions to total power of both Julius Caesar and Pompey, the rivals for power at the time. And the historian Plutarch wrote of him in his famous Life of Cato the Younger, he was the only free and only undefeated man. So is the Cato Institute named after Cato the Younger? Not quite. It's actually named after his legacy, which is a bit more complicated and rather interesting. Cato the Younger was presented to European audiences by the English writer Joseph Addison in 1713 when his play Cato, A Tragedy, was performed to great acclaim in London. It was just imagine all the musicals you've ever heard of all rolled up into one. It was the big sensation. And very quickly translated into many other European languages and performed in the stage in great European cities. It was a favorite of George Washington. Years later, Washington was very moved by this play. He had the play performed before the beleaguered American soldiers at Valley Forge in 1778 as they were starving. It was a morale booster. It was to remind them what it was for which they were fighting. He wanted to rally his men to fight on regardless of the odds. In the play, Cato's son, in the first act, says, "'Tis not in mortals to command success, but we'll do more, Sempronius, we'll deserve it." And Washington was determined that they would deserve victory. Many years before, at the age of 26, when he was away during the French and Indian Wars, he wrote home in a letter I should think my time more agreeably spent, believe me, in playing a part in Cato. So that had a big influence on George Washington's life, and Americans should be very, very grateful uh, for that. George Washington, in my opinion, is one of the greatest political figures who ever lived because he resigned from power twice when he could have held on to it. And that was an extraordinarily important moment in American history. Indeed, many of the most memorable phrases of the American Revolution and the War for Independence were cribbed from, or at least inspired by, Addison's play. That includes Patrick Henry's famous lines from his speech of March 23, 1775 at the St. John's Church in Richmond, Virginia. It was an echo of the words of Cato in the play to the young prince Juba, a North African prince. He says, remember, the hand of fate is over us, and heaven exacts severity from all our thoughts. It is not now a time to talk of aught but chains or conquest, liberty or death. And Patrick Henry and his audience knew that that was the source, that was the inspiration for his famous speech. But there's one more step uh, from Cato to the Cato Institute. And that was the inspiration given by Addison's play to two writers in London, two radical writers or Whig writers as they would have been known at the time by the names of John Trenchard and Thomas Gordon. And they wrote a whole series of newspaper articles under the name, the pseudonym Cato. It was quite common at the time to write under a pseudonym because you would be persecuted and arrested. Uh, if you irritated those with power, and classical names were particularly important, and this name was associated with standing up for republican virtues and op opposition to tyranny. So between November 1720 and December 1723, Trenchard and Gordon wrote 144 articles offering populariz popularizations and applications of Whig, or we might call them proto-libertarian, early limited government ideas that have been associated with the Levelers, a group I'll talk about tomorrow, uh, and John Locke and Algernon Sidney, uh, and the general movement for limited government in England. 
Now, those essays were then collected and published in book form as Cato's Letters. And like Addison's play, Cato, A Tragedy, they were extremely important in the political education of those who were then to formulate the principles of the American Republic and to fight for an independent nation. You find uh, uh, found people in the founding period saying, as Cato has demonstrated, and they're referring to Cato's letters, was a constant. And these books were in the libraries of all of the founders. So they were deeply significant and important documents. The historian Bernard Balin, in his very influential book, The Origins of American Politics, said, quote, so influential was Cato's letters in the colonies, so packed with ideological meaning, that reinforced by Addison's universally popular play, Cato and the colonists' selectively Whiggish reading of the Roman historians, it gave rise to what might be called a catonic image, personifying the whole of opposition thought in which the career of the half-mythological Roman and the words of the two London journalists merged indistinguishably forming a set of ideas that were referred to as Cato's. And those principles that bore the name of Cato were written into the American Declaration of Independence, the various state constitutions, the Articles of Confederation, the United States Constitution, and the Bill of Rights. Now, because of the scholarship of Balin and others who were rediscovering the roots of the American founding, uh, the Cato Institute was named after Cato because of the realization of how important these were. And like the authors of Cato's letters, what they do is to explain to the public in normal language, you don't have to have a fancy doctorate in philosophy to understand these ideas, normal everyday language, uh, the ideas of liberty, and then to apply them to particular issues as they come up, issues of public policy. So Cato's work isn't just to produce research or promote good government or policy improvements, but to connect our core principles to issues of the day. I'm reminded some years ago I spoke at a program of the Fulbright Scholars, and there was another person from another think tank there. I won't mention the name, but it was the Brookings Institution. <laughs> oh, sorry. Uh, and uh, the person there said, unlike the Cato Institute, we have no agenda whatsoever we only promote objective social science research. And it was, it was charming. <laughs> but the naivete, because I think she actually believed it. And I explained, everyone has an agenda. Everyone has certain questions that they think are important, issues that they want to see discussed. Just the questions you ask tells me a great deal about your agenda. And our perspective is, it's a much healthier discussion when you put your principles and your agenda on the table, and there's nothing hidden about it. Now, among the questions we like to ask uh, that makes Cato unique or certainly unusual is one that's very unpopular in Washington. I can tell you that. It's rude, it's out of place, it's considered coarse and undignified. If you ask this question in Washington at a dinner party or a cocktail reception, you will see noses wrinkle in disgust and people will turn away. It's a conversation stopper. You will not be invited back again. And I will give you the, the full formulation of the question. Is this proposed or currently exercised power authorized in the legal documents that found this republic? specifically in the Constitution of the United States of America. And that is considered roughly the equivalent of a loud belch at dinner. <laughs> People do not want to deal with it and they will avoid you if you, had that, if you ask that question. That has been the way it's been for a long time, until actually quite recently, thanks to a number of Cato scholars, one of whom will be speaking to you at this program, Randy Barnett. Because of them, five members of the Supreme Court took that question very seriously for the first time in over 100 years, when they found that the Commerce Clause imposed at least some limitations, rather than unlimited authority and power, <clears throat> on the powers of the federal government. And that was in the legal case over the so-called affordable, or we now understand unaffordable, Care Act or Obamacare. It was a puzzling victory 
because we won on the key principle, but Justice Roberts found that the Obamacare mandate was justifiable as an exercise of the power to tax, which left a lot of people scratching their heads. But it was a very important principle on a, a victory on a legal principle that will be applicable in many future cases for years to come. It was just a dream until very recently. A wild idea found by among just some academics and some think tank wonks at 1000 Massachusetts Avenue Northwest. I'm also pleased to report that yesterday we won another victory in federal court and we struck down the District of Columbia's outright ban on the carrying of firearms in the District of Columbia. So I was one of the plaintiffs. I actually like to think of myself as a somewhat more sophisticated TIF, but they called me a plain TIF. Uh, and when I got off the plane in uh, San Diego yesterday, I turned on my iPhone, and it just started downloading email after email after email after email, and Facebook posts and tweets, and my, my iPhone nearly exploded. I, I only wish that James Madison had been there to read those tweets. Uh, and what we found is the court said that the exercise of a fundamental right that is enumerated in the Constitution may not be eliminated or banned. Shocking. Uh, but that's what the court found. Uh, we had already won that in the Heller case, in which I was also uh, a plaintiff. But the D.C. government grudgingly allowed us to keep arms but not to bear them. And we had to go back to court and say, you missed two words in the Constitution. It says, keep and bear. And their position <clears throat> was, because they have the right to impose or create reasonable time, place, and manner regulations, which is true of other fundamental rights as well, that that authorized them to completely ban it. And on that reading of the Constitution, the First Amendment would have authorized them to ban the construction of any church, temple, mosque, or synagogue in the District of Columbia as a mere exercise of their power to exercise the, uh, to regulate the free exercise of religion. Now, Cato was not institutionally involved in those most recent lawsuit, although I was personally involved, but the process was set in motion by Cato's chairman, Bob Levy, who personally funded the Heller case. Uh, Bob is a wonderful, amazing person, and we are so grateful that he's active with Cato. He's a person of extraordinary intellect and personal integrity. And he paid for the whole case, just out of his own pocket. Doesn't own a gun, isn't a gun nut, blah, blah, blah. He said, I believe in the Constitution. And he didn't want anyone to say the gun lobby paid for this. He wanted them to say, it's just that guy who believes in the Constitution. And even I offered to contribute as I was a plaintiff. He said, no, I have to say clearly, only I paid for that. I can't say, and some other people. That dilutes the message. And we won on that. He uh, organized the, the case, and with Clark Neely of our friendly organization, the Institute for Justice, uh, set that process in motion and created the strategy. The reason for all that is that Cato, we believe that words have meaning. And those meanings are not merely whatever we want them to mean or whatever we find convenient, but the Constitution actually does mean something. We reject the doctrine of the living Constitution, which is a kind of legal amoeba that can change shape whenever it wants and send out little pseudopods to absorb things into itself. Uh, such a living Constitution has no determinate authority, no limits, and no meaning. Thomas Sowell put it very nicely. When you find out that your Constitution is living, that's the moment you find out it's dead. <clears throat> and the rule of law is very important to us. It's central to the enjoyment of liberty and republic. James Harrington put it very neatly in a phrase that the founders knew quite well. He said, seeing that they make the laws in common, that seeing they that make the laws in commonwealth are but men, the main question seems to be how a commonwealth comes to be an empire of laws and not of men. And that was the key issue. Thomas Jefferson formulated it even more strongly in 1798 in the drafts of the Kentucky Resolutions. 
uh, when he stated, it would be a dangerous delusion were a confidence in the men of our choice to silence our fears for the safety of our rights. Confidence is everywhere the parent of despotism. Free government is founded in jealousy and not in confidence. It is jealousy and not confidence which prescribes limited constitutions to bind those whom we are obliged to trust with power. Our constitution has accordingly fixed the limits to which and no further our confidence may go. In questions of power then, let no more be heard of confidence in man, but bind him down from mischief by the chains of the Constitution. And what is it that every politician tells us? Trust me, just trust me. And we understand we should never do that. Now the American constitutional order has, gives very clear meaning. It is a clear statement of limited government. This little document, everyone has one. I hope you'll carry it with you. I usually carry two. One for myself and one for the poor guy sitting next to me on the plane. <laughs> uh, I always share these with. Cato has produced millions and millions of these and I've been very happy uh, taking cab rides in Pittsburgh and uh, Tucson and so on to find taxi drivers often have these with them. I say, what do you do? And so on. I mention if it's a Cato trip and they say, Cato Institute and out comes the pocket constitution which is made to fit in a shirt pocket or a lady's handbag or a rancher's back pocket or what have you. And this document makes very clear these uh, principles. If you look at the Declaration of Independence, it states very neatly uh, among the, about our unalienable rights. Among these, it doesn't say these are, among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. To secure these rights, Notice, not to give, grant, or create, but to secure. You secure what is already yours. Governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers. Powers is plural. It is often misquoted, and I have heard serious professors of political science misquote this, that, that it says the Declaration says government derives power from the consent of the governed. It does not. Powers, which suggests some may not, in fact, be granted or derived, and then those are limited, just powers, which tells you very clearly some powers are unjust and consequently could not be derived from the consent of the people. It's a very clear doctrine of limited government and limited powers. And then in the Constitution, I'm going to uh, go over something a number of other speakers will mention, but it is so important, I'll mention it again quickly. Article 1, Section 1. All legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in a Congress of the United States. Herein granted, that tells us there are potential powers not granted herein, which is to say those powers are not vested in the Congress of the United States. If you move on then to Article 1, Section 8, find it here, it says the Congress shall have power too, and then there's a list of the powers. They are enumerated. There's a real list of them. It doesn't say, the Congress shall have power. It says, the Congress shall have power too. And then there is a long list of those powers. And of course, the crowning glory, the Ninth and Tenth Amendments are explicit, clear, unequivocal doctrines of unlimited rights on the part of the people and limited powers on the part of the state. That is the operating manual of American government and that is why the Cato Institute has produced millions and millions of them for citizens to be able to carry about. Now this program is not a very focused issue. It's not just about economics or law or history. It's intended to give an intensive immersion in the ideas of liberty across a multitude of disciplines. Now, liberty has been on the defense for quite a long time. Uh, but we have seen, as things have sometimes become rather dire, more people standing up for the principles of liberty. Our movement has been energized by a number of developments. The insurgency of the Tea Party, the anger at the bailouts and the subsidies uh, that we have seen, and the excessive debt and the spending and the spending and the spending, and drowning future generations in debt. The movement to allow states to decide on cannabis 
and to push back against the federal government and states that have now been legalizing uh, people smoking a plant. And something that's very important to me, the growth of Students for Liberty, a group that Cato works with very closely. I'm very proud to be an advisor and supporter of that group. Uh, and the international growth of the libertarian movement, about which I'll speak in more detail on Tuesday. So this is an exciting time to be a libertarian, to be a believer in liberty. Not only in the courts, where libertarians have been setting the agenda, have been the driving force for a great deal of the legal agenda in recent years, but also in electoral politics. A lot more talk of libertarianism than had been the case in previous years. Last year, a headline in the Washington Post was really quite striking and uh, cool to read. It said, libertarianism is hot. <laughs> and I like, I like being hot. Uh, we have seen in the year 2013, uh, David Bowes uh, checked these things, 21 headlines in which libertarianism was in the headline. Ten years before, there were two, one of which referred to the American Civil Liberties Union and said civil libertarianism. So in effect, uh, just one. Today, the New York Times had a series of articles endorsing uh, legalization of marijuana. This is a position that libertarians led on for years and years and were vilified and attacked for our views on this. The assumption, as the former drug czar of the United States said, of Milton Friedman and uh, his friends, uh, when Friedman spoke out on legalization of marijuana, uh, he asked, he says, what's that guy been smoking? It's a disgraceful moment. Uh, to when he said that about such a great thinker and scholar to suggest that Milton Friedman was a, a pothead. And if anyone knew him, this is not a plausible claim. Uh, and that that was the reason for his principal support. And in the New York Times editorial, they talk about libertarian, 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 libertarian uh, in their editorials in which we have moved them uh, so far on this issue. Rand Paul is a serious presidential candidate and he advances a lot of libertarian positions, challenging the surveillance state, federal overreach, the uh, extraordinary criminal justice state, the criminalization of everything that has been going on. Uh, those are very big deals and to see this happening in American politics is really quite uh, striking. Now, there's more public support. I should also mention the uh, remarkable polling data, 59% uh, of the American public, according to a Zogby poll, uh, said that they were fiscally conservative and socially liberal, and 44% agreed with the statement they were fiscally conservative and socially liberal, known as libertarian. That would translate to about 100 million adult Americans. It's a very substantial uh, body of persons and people understand that that is a potential body of voters and they're addressing them. Now with this greater profile and more interest and more public support, uh, you get also a lot more attacks. And I think that's a good sign. My view is bring it on. I'm happy to see attacks. We've seen Salon Magazine has had a whole series of uh, scurrilous attacks on libertarianism. A think tank, Demos, has hired a whole staff to do nothing but write, I happen to think, dishonest attacks on libertarian ideas. Those are more or less from the left. From the right, Michael Gerson, the former George uh, W. Bush speechwriter who gave us big government conservatism, that, that wonderful phrase, compassionate conservatism, which is you've got to pay more, uh, which is what that turns into, and the gigantic explosion in federal spending that we saw under the Bush administration. Uh, he's now a Washington Post uh, columnist, and he's written a whole series of articles attacking libertarians as morally empty, anti-government, a scandal, an idealism that strangles mercy, guilty of ruthless selfishness, a rigid ideology, and rigorous ideological coldness. As I said, these are good things. It's a good thing when people take your ideas seriously enough to attack them, even if the attacks may in fact be unfair or unwarranted. They are in fact taking you seriously. We have seen people challenging and questioning government policies that have been taken granted for decades and decades and decades. And more citizens are saying, is this warranted? Is this authorized?
the increasing intrusion into our financial affairs. Be aware, every financial transaction right now is monitored by government agencies. There's virtually no privacy. And if you live abroad, FATCA is now driving Americans to give up their citizenship. And I have met a number of Americans who have said, you know, I've lived for 20 years in Lebanon, my wife is Lebanese, or in Russia, or Ukraine, or China, or wherever, and now no bank will do business with me. One old friend said, his bank called him and said, we're closing your account. We're going to give you the cash. Come pick it up or we throw it out. You are too costly because we cannot deal with the United States Treasury and the IRS, and they have been incredibly aggressive. And he is not a rich guy. He's not a fat cat. He's not a drug dealer. He's a reporter uh, for an English-language newspaper in Lebanon. And he finally said, well, he, it hurt, but he went down to the U.S. Embassy and he said, Here's the passport. I don't need this. And that is what is happening right now. Thousands of Americans are giving up their citizenship because they're being hounded and harassed by our government. One could go on. All the things we read in the papers that annoy us and are so shocking. And it's going to take a lot of work to undo all of that. Give you one simple example that I mentioned that many people are shocked when I bring this up. Americans were accustomed for the history of this republic not having to show your ID to government agents. And that expression in other languages, your papers, vos papiers, where are your papers, was considered repulsive to Americans. The very idea that you could be stopped on the street and that someone could say, show me your papers. Well, now it's happened. It slipped right past us. You can't travel in the United States now without showing your identity. You cannot get on an airplane. You cannot get on a train. And they state, if you do not have a government-issued identity, form of identity, you will be kicked off or not allowed on. It turns out terrorists don't have ID papers. And so this somehow excludes them. But it has suggest, subjected all of us to a form of supervision that is foreign to the American history. And in 2004, the United States Supreme Court legalized. It was a five to four decision, and Cato was very active in this case, and, and we lost. Uh, the Hibble versus Sixth Judicial District Court of Nevada, uh, a man stated, I don't want to talk, quote unquote, to a police officer. The police officer demanded he show him identification papers. He arrested him. We litigated, and it turns out the Supreme Court said, you may be arrested simply for saying, I don't want to talk, although there is no suspicion of illegal behavior. You are not charged with a crime and no reasonable reason to think you have committed one. So gone are the days when a peaceful person could walk down the street minding his or her own business and not be humiliated and subjected to that kind of control uh, by a government officer. Now, I could go on. I could talk about the fiscal crisis of the state and the fact that we are burdening future generations with oceans of red ink. And I have to say, I'm really ashamed that people of my generation, myself included, have allowed this to happen. That young people uh, entering the workforce now are coming in with such a staggering burden of government debt to be paid off or inflated away, either way. Uh, they will pay for it, and it's shameful that we have failed to uh, uh, control that. You can find all the shocking numbers at Cato.org or Cato's website, downsizinggovernment.org. Now, fortunately, one of our allies in this effort is the Obama administration. It's doing its level best to warn people of the dangers of unaccountable big government just by doing what they do so well, which is to ignore the law and tell us we don't care, that we will ignore the law. And this is, I think, shocking a lot of people. And we are getting more allies, including people on the center left, who are becoming increasingly disturbed about this. So much of the growth of government arises from a crisis mentality. We find ourselves in some kind of a crisis, and we seem to abandon rational thought. We forget to ask questions. We assume they know what they're doing.
And there's a syllogism of power. It goes as follows. Something must be done. This is something. Therefore, this must be done. And politicians understand that dynamic very, very well. They use it constantly to ratchet up the power of government. Former Congressman Rahm Emanuel, now mayor of Chicago, but at the time President Obama's chief of staff, put it very neatly on television. It's a great moment to watch on YouTube. Mm -hmm. Quote, you never want a serious crisis to go to waste. And what I mean by that is an opportunity to do things that you did not think you could do before. And that is exactly how this system operates. But it's our job to ask the awkward questions, to bring about the wrinkled noses of our bien-pensant left liberal friends and our conservative friends say, how could you ask that question? How could you challenge them? How could you demand a justification in the Constitution? We want to know that what is being proposed is in fact constitutional. It is morally justified. It is efficient. It will do the job, and it is compatible with our values and principles. We do not want to abdicate our responsibilities as free persons and citizens of a republic and just give a free hand to the politicians and special interests to do whatever they want with our businesses, our lives, our homes, our educations, our families. That's why we hold Cato University. We want to ask questions, we want to understand, to decide what is acceptable and what not, and to be willing to pose those questions in the public sphere, to pose them to politicians and again to our friends and neighbors and family members. Now, the central uh, focus of, of our movement, libertarian movement, it's gone by many names in different countries. There's no magic to that word libertarian. It's called liberal in many countries. It's been called Whig movement or Republican or sometimes conservative. Different names in different countries and languages. Uh, is an integrated set of ideas. There's a very fine book I recommended by, that I recommend by George Smith called The System of Liberty that was published by Cambridge University uh, Press last year. It's a very, very good book that looks at the systematic interconnection of these ideas. The relationship between liberty, the rule of law, property, market economy, limited government, and peace. John Locke is a very important figure in this regard. As he put it in his second treatise, the end of law is not to abolish or restrain, but to preserve and enlarge freedom. Where there is no law, there is no freedom. I think this is a very deep and wise insight, and that's why we insist on the rule of law rather than the rule of men. Liberty depends on that to which one has a right, that is to say one's property. So what is your property? discuss that, we can turn to ideas of law and justice as articulated by lawyers, experts in jurisprudence, moral philosophy, and of course economics as well. Does liberty lead to order or to chaos? The other side constantly says if you have all this freedom it'll be chaotic. You need to have direct control, command and control. That's one of the important issues that liberal, liberals and libertarians responded and said no. When rights are well-defined, when they are legally preserved, and when they can be transferable, people will create more order. They don't need to be commanded. That's why market economies work better than command economies. Now, none of those ideas just stand on their own. They are all interconnected. They, none of them have a meaning in isolation from the others. So that's what we're going to be talking about. That's what I mean by a science of liberty, to see the way in which the ideas of liberty are interconnected. Now that's the life of a work, uh, the work of a lifetime, but we've got a week uh, to, to get through a lot of this, and we have some outstanding teachers. Uh, we have law and constitutional theory from Georgetown Law Professor and Cato Senior Fellow Randy Barnett, who is one of the most influential legal thinkers in America today. One might argue he's the most influential, and this is really, in my opinion, a great opportunity because so much of the important litigation and work in the courts has been formulated by uh, Randy Barnett. In social and economic science, we have Professor Jeffrey Myron from Harvard University. He's a rock star professor there, uh, very, very popular. 
He's also editor of the Cato Papers on Public Policy and he's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. We have foreign affairs and political analysis with some focus on Latin America from Gabriela Calderon, who's a Cato uh, research associate. And she edits a fabulous website, if you read Spanish, uh, called elcato.org, uh, out of Guayaquil, Ecuador. And she is a terror to the socialists in Latin America. They are, they are frightened of her uh, because she stands right up to them and is not intimidated and is a formidable debater in both English and Spanish. We'll have a presentation on the history of libertarian ideas and politics by journalist and historian Brian Doherty, who is senior editor at Reason Magazine and the author of a number of very, very important books on the liberty movement. We'll have explanations of American history by Robert McDonald, who's professor at United States uh, Military Academy at West Point and also just a rock star uh, teacher. I'll be talking about some of his contributions to the understanding the American founding. Applied public policy from Cato Associate Director for Financial Studies, Luis Bennett, who'll talk about a, a, a policies gone wrong and how that works. A political science and foreign policy from Professor Eric Gardsky, who is at the University of California at San Diego, who's done all kinds of important work on the relationship between free trade and international peace. And I should mention that I've had the pleasure of working with a lot of these scholars, and most recently two of them, Rob McDonald and Eric Gardsky, in a new little book which is coming out September 1, uh, my latest book, Peace, Love, and Liberty, and they both contributed outstanding chapters to that. So it'll be 350,000 copies coming off the press uh, next month, and I hope you'll get a, at least a few of them. Uh, and I should also mention, I'll be inflecting a few uh, presentations on history, political sociology, and some other topics as well. So that's a lot of material to cover, a lot of ideas to bounce around, a lot of learning, and so here's some concluding remarks on how we might put the time to good use. First point uh, is uh, not to set our time to Pacific Standard Time, but set all of your watches to Swiss time. And uh, so my watch says, all right, we've got uh, 9.20 exactly. Uh, that's very important uh, because we need to start on time. And even I'm gonna stick to this, I have to warn you, I just flew around the planet one and a quarter times in the last two weeks. Uh, from D.C. to Las Vegas to San Francisco to Shanghai to New Delhi to D.C. to here. And so my current time zone is somewhere between Shanghai and New Delhi. Uh, but I am going to insist on being there uh, early in the morning uh, because our motto is punctuality. So when the program says, and all of you have it here on the back, that we start at 9 o'clock with Professor Myron, what that means is at 9 o'clock, his mouth will open and sound will come out. <laughs> so that's what nine o'clock means. And what I find, it's so much better when you do things that way. Nine o'clock, we start, and it says that we are going to be done with that program at 10.15, 10.15, no more sounds. <laughs> it's over. Then we have a coffee break. When you start a little bit late and then you go over, it's just a mess, in my opinion. And it becomes a very unenjoyable program. You don't know when to show up, and people are late, and so on. So uh, there's a wonderful German word, Pünktlichkeit, so punctuality. And what it means is, actually, uh, you have the full time for the break. We don't have to say, well, we're making the break eight minutes instead of 30 minutes. You have the full time for the break. You can do your Tai Chi exercises outside. Uh, then we start again. It also means, if it says 9 o'clock, try to be in your seat a few minutes in advance. So you can find that comfy, warm place and kind of move into it a little bit, and then we'll start exactly on time. That will make everything much better. For the students here, uh, who are here on scholarships, I should remind you, it was very competitive. Uh, the funds were donated by our uh, donors who could have spent it doing cool and exciting things, but they wanted to spend it for you to be here. So you were expected not to sleep in. I remember being a student uh, not too long ago, and that was always a challenge. But you have cell phones, alarms in the room, there's an alarm on your television, and the hotel has a wake-up service. Do all of them. 
so that you will, you will be here uh, on time uh, and use technology to overcome the effects of being up too late talking about uh, the meaning of liberty. Now, a few other quick things, just some suggestions. Uh, I encourage you, well, it's not a rule, you don't have to do it, wear these name tags. The reason is you'll know with whom you're speaking, and this is a valuable thing. You'll get to know more people, it's just a little bit more polite. What I do, because I forget where I put these things, is when I go into my hotel room, I've learned over the years, I take my room key and my name tag and I put them in front of the door. So when I leave, I say, oh, there's my room key and my name tag, and I will take them on the way out. Otherwise, I'm not wondering where I left it and I forget it and so on. So that's one way uh, to deal with that. If you have any issues, problems, we have uh, wonderful colleagues here. Uh, please talk to them and they'll help to sort things out. The hotel is um, very gracious and helpful to uh, deal with any issues. Um, we're going to start with breakfast in the Bernardo patio, which is right outside here. And then promptly 9 o'clock with Professor Myron. Please don't leave any belongings in this room. It's going to be cleared and reset for uh, tomorrow's sessions. Uh, there'll be a meeting in the Catalina room for the scholarship students. Chip, is that tonight? This evening. So would you stand up? This is the man uh, uh, to talk to for all of the students here. And they're going to be meeting in the Catalina room. And I should point out that this is actually an opportunity to get briefings on how to be successful in life because people who've screwed up a lot will talk to you but all the mistakes they made and try to help you to avoid those. So we have some special meetings for the students and that is really uh, the function of them. Uh, we're going to be at the Valencia Bar on the ground level for uh, the after dinner discussion. I think I will check out because it is currently um, sometime in the afternoon tomorrow or yesterday for me, uh, but I'll be there for some time. Uh, have a wonderful time, and I'll see you in the morning. Thank you.